friends, and welcome to Conversations with Consequences. We are the ladies of the Catholic Association, bringing you witty and charming in-depth conversation on the topics that matter to you with the leading thinkers and movers of our time. Conversations with Consequences is part of the EWTN Global Catholic Radio Network. Our radio show is always a podcast, and you can listen by going to thecatholicassociation.org slash podcasts, or you can just go directly to wherever you listen to your podcasts. I'm your hostess, Dr. Gracie Christie. And today, I'm sorry to tell you, we are going back to COVID. Yes, it's the topic that never ceases to give us things to talk about. So today, we're going to talk about funerals in the age of COVID. We have a guest, Robert Selig, who has been very active in transforming Catholic funerals during this unique moment when so many of us, sadly, are facing not only the sadness of burying a loved one, but also the difficulties imposed by the lockdowns and the difficulties uh, around COVID. COVID transmission, including not being able to accompany our loved ones to the grave site or even in the hospital as they're dying. So Robert Selig's come up with some creative ways to overcome these these things that we're experiencing. But first, also in the COVID category, we've just recently received news of a vaccine for the coronavirus being 90% effective and available pretty soon the next month. And we've asked Dr. David Prentice of the Charlotte Lozier Institute, that's the research branch of the Susan B. Anthony list, to come and talk to us not only about how effective this vaccine might be, but also another very important issue, which is the ethics of, uh, of vaccine production. We uh, are very concerned about that as as people of conscience, of as Catholics, and we know that many vaccines have been developed over the years using aborted fetal tissue. Dr. Prentice is here to help us through these moments and to give us guidance on how we can go forward in this new age of COVID vaccines. Dr. David Prentice, welcome to the show. Thanks so much. Glad to be with you. David, we had to have you on this week because we've got this amazing development that all of us have heard on the news. Conveniently, the news was released just after the election, not before, so that someone we know doesn't get credit. <laughs> we won't even mention his name. Yeah. <laughs> but leaving all that aside, because that's not what the show is about today, it's very exciting to think that this scourge of COVID might be meeting its adversary in a vaccine that might be significantly effective. Now, you as an expert who has been looking into this since COVID started, how do you feel about this new development? Well, I, I'm excited about it. Right? Maybe we should say that we're cautiously optimistic because it is still early. They haven't finished all of the, the clinical trial yet, so this is based on early data. But what we're talking about is the news that the vaccine made by Pfizer and their partner, BioNTech, looks like it is over 90% effective. And that is tremendous. I mean, the usual flu vaccine that we get every year is somewhere between 30 to 60 percent. And most of the other vaccines we get, you can't even get up to 90 percent. So the fact that you've got, it looks like, over 90 percent effectiveness in this particular COVID-19 vaccine is very exciting. Now, it'll, it'll take a while for them to finish up this trial because we want to make sure it's safe, but it already looks like it is effective and all they would need to do is finish up show the safety give us all of the information and then start churning out millions and millions of doses so that we can avail ourselves of this vaccine. David, effectiveness is important, but you also mentioned safety. Vaccines have gotten a bad rap over the many years mm-hmm. that we've been using vaccines. In the beginning, vaccines caused the same disease and some people didn't survive yeah. the vaccination, the inoculation. But still, to this day, people attribute to vaccines the risk of autism, creating autism, which which has been disproven in many studies, but still people are scared. People are also concerned about things like Guillain-Barre, which is a syndrome that can mm-hmm. sometimes strike after you have a vaccine and ascending paralysis. It's it's very dangerous and scary. What do you say about those issues? I mean, you're developing a vaccine yeah. that presumably the entire world population is going to be injected with. This could have <laughs> big ramifications, right? right? Huge, huge ramifications. And let me, let me take a little bit of time and kind of go through some of the things you mentioned in olden days, let's call it that, there was only one way to make a vaccine against a virus. What you did was you had viruses have to grow inside a cell. And so you would have a culture of cells growing in the laboratory. You would put some virus in there 
lots and lots of virus would grow. You would take that back out, and then they would produce what's either called an inactivated vaccine, where supposedly you had killed the virus, or what's called attenuated or weakened, where you, you don't completely kill the virus, but it's very, very weakened and shouldn't cause the disease. Well, they didn't always get that right, which is why some people did get vaccine in days past for a virus and then actually show symptoms of the disease, maybe develop a full-blown disease and so on. Now, they've gotten much better at doing that nowadays. And so I don't think there is really a great fear at this point that they are not actually killing or significant weakening the virus. But, you know, the reason they're doing these huge phase three clinical trials where they're injecting 30,000 or 60,000 people is there might be something that, you know, maybe only a few people respond in a certain way, but you need to look at a large number of folks to see if there is safety or any sort of adverse events, as they're called, some problem. Now, mostly what happens nowadays in terms of any of these vaccines, the adverse event is I got a little bit of a fever. Obviously, my arm was a little sore where you injected it, but nothing like the severe reactions that we might have seen in days past. But you have to go through and finish the trial and look at all of the data from tens of thousands of people before you can be assured that it would be safe. And and I might note that these are being pushed through very fast, and it's because of some newer ways. There are actually four new ways to make a vaccine that we can talk about now, but you still have to do the safety studies and let those all come out so we can be assured they're safe. And, And in point of fact, our current FDA has said they're also going to have an external group of scientists looking at all of the data so they can verify that this vaccine is safe and actually meets the benchmarks for effectiveness. So I think if this goes through all of the stages as it is supposed to go, I would certainly feel okay at taking one of these vaccines if I know how the vaccine was made. And that kind of leads us to this next thing about (laughs) there's an ethical question. But David, if you don't mind me interrupting you for a moment, before we get to that that part of it, there's a strong contingent of Americans and people all over the world, really, who are against vaccines in general because they don't trust that the vaccine won't have some long-term effect. What would you say to someone like that who is contemplating the COVID vaccine when it doesn't when it doesn't affect become available? I would say I think you can rest assured that if this goes through all of these safety checks as well as the efficacy test, but especially the safety checks with tens of thousands of people, I think you can be confident that this vaccine will be safe, that it wouldn't have any sort sort of adverse event that you need to be worried about. Now, there is an aspect of that which relates also to the ethics of how the vaccines are produced that I think should give people pause. And that is if these vaccines are grown in an abortion-derived cell line, not fetal tissue. We're not talking about stem cells or anything like that. But frankly, decades ago, some scientists put little chunks of tissue from aborted babies into a Petri dish in the lab from that cells grow out. Now, it's no longer fetal tissue at that point. It's just a bunch of cells growing in the dish. But over a period of time, they have taken those cells and they'll move them from one dish to the next and one dish to 10 or 100 and so on. And some of those cells, called a cell line, because there's a lineage there, they keep growing and growing and growing, were derived from aborted baby tissue. Was it in the very beginning of of vaccine development that these cell lines were developed? Yes, it was back in the 1960s and 70s. There's been there's never been any vaccines produced or developed in fetal tissue from ongoing abortion. That's that's another area that we've been trying to to stop frankly, and stop any taxpayer funding on. But these cells were grown out and grown in the lab now for decades, but starting again, yeah, back in the 1960s and so on. And in fact, in some cases, that was their purpose. They used them to grow viruses for vaccines, polio vaccines 
for example. Not all, but some of the polio vaccine was actually grown in one of these fetal cell lines from abortion back in the 1960s. Nowadays, all of the polio vaccines are made in licitly derived cells. There are, there's none of the polio vaccine that, uh, that is grown using one of these old abortion-derived cell lines. To review for yeah. our listeners, for a vaccine to be produced, it has to be grown. The virus, these particles have to grow in a medium, and that medium has to include some type of human cell. Oh, not a human cell, but a cell. A cell. At so it doesn't even have to be human. No, it doesn't have to be human. In fact, I think there might be an advantage for us if it is grown in an animal type of cell, or at least it should not be grown in a human cell that was derived from abortion. And that's where this question Uh, that is still an open question, frankly. If a virus is grown in one of those cells, the way you then get the virus back out is you, you basically break apart all of those cells. Well, if there are any pieces of human DNA from that abortion derived cell or pieces of protein and so on that you might be injected with. I think for the most part, there's probably nothing to worry about, but those studies haven't really been completed in terms of any physical effects, but especially in terms of our ethics and how that works on our conscience. What would you say, to, so, what would you say to a listener who's listening now and saying, oh my gosh, I got a vaccine for polio years ago that was developed on fetal cell lines and now I'm concerned. What would you say to their ethical responsibility at this point? I'd say at this point, you, you needn't worry. Frankly, there weren't a lot of those polio vaccines made, even back in the 60s, when someone might have have gotten that vaccine that were made in these abortion-derived cell lines. Like I said, subsequently, and certainly now, all of those vaccines for polio are not made in that abortion-derived cell line. And I think you also have to think about, well, Did you even know? Even if you had gotten one like that, you don't bear any complicity, any cooperation in the evil act. If no one made you aware that those cells had been used in that vaccine production. And, and in point of fact, that's one of the things we're trying to educate people about now, especially with these new potential vaccines for COVID-19. Are they using any of those abortion-derived cells or not? Because as I look at it, I don't want to use a vaccine that might have some sort of cooperation along that way. I'm trying to find something where there is no use of an abortion-derived cell in making this vaccine. Well, here's a million-dollar question. Does the new Pfizer vaccine, which we may all be injecting soon, was that developed using fetal cell lines uh, from aborted fetuses? And, and the short answer is no. Wonderful. Uh, it's, it's one of these new technologies, in fact, if we want to go through those briefly. Like I said, the old was you grow the virus in the cell, you have to pop the cells open and get a bunch of virus out and you get a whole virus. Well, all of these newer technologies, number one, are quicker to try and get to something, but they don't, in many of case, the cases, like the Pfizer vaccine, they don't use any cells. So the Pfizer vaccine is what's called an M. RNA. It stands for messenger RNA, and it's an information molecule in our cells. It's a recipe, if you will, to tell a cell how to make a protein. Now, why would you want to make a protein? Well, our immune system needs to look at an invader like the coronavirus and recognize it as foreign. It, our immune systems needs to be armed up. And so what you do in making this new type of vaccine is you essentially think about, you know, you've probably seen, your listeners have probably seen the little drawings of that coronavirus, and it's got all these spiky things all over it. Those mm -hmm. are called spike protein. If our immune cells are looking at one of those viruses, that's like the face on the wanted poster. That's what they will look at first and say, okay, yeah, that's that virus. I should kill it. I should stop it. And so what the, the Pfizer vaccine and a number of others as well do is they make this little information molecule called RNA. They package it in what amounts to a little droplet of oil. It's a lipid droplet, which is similar to the membranes in our cells. And that's to protect this little information molecule and also to help get it into our cells. The vaccine, we get that. The little information molecule goes into our cells 
And it's, like I say, a recipe for making that spike protein. It's not spike protein itself. It's the recipe. And then our cells use that recipe to make that virus protein and then show it to our immune cells. And so they see that, like, again, like a face on a wanted poster. They will make antibodies and be armed and ready if we ever see that little coronavirus show up. Not even made with cells. It's made using enzymatic reactions in a test tube in the lab. There aren't even any cells involved in making this one. So let me see if I get this straight. So our human cells that we have are going to see this messenger RNA protein and react by creating a little piece of the coronavirus, as it were, uh, that will then alert our immune system to start creating antibody to the entire virus. That's it. Okay. So uh, that's we, very cool. Kind of, uh, it's sort of uh, outsourcing, <laughs> uh, making the protein instead of doing it uh, in the laboratory or making a whole virus. You give the instructions, you give the recipe to our own cells, and in our own bodies, we make just that one little protein, not the whole virus, but just that little face on the wanted poster, and then our immune cells are ready. If that virus ever shows up, there's another new technology called DNA vaccine. It's very similar to the RNA vaccine like the Pfizer. The DNA vaccine is, again, a type of information molecule. They give it to our cells. Our cells use that to make that little protein. There are uh, some types of vaccines. And I might note that at present, there are over 200 different possible vaccines that people are working on. The Pfizer one and several others just happen to be the ones farthest along and testing, but there are a bunch of these coming. Do you know how many of these are ethically tainted? There aren't very many, interestingly enough. That's great. Uh, It is very encouraging, Uh, but we still need to kind of watch and see what develops and what comes forward so we know how to make an informed decision, an ethical decision. So the, the RNA and the DNA vaccines don't even use cells. It's made with enzymes in the laboratory in a test tube and then our cells read that recipe and make the the protein. There are some vaccines they're working on that they actually do make just the protein in the laboratory. And that has to be done again in cells. Most of those protein vaccines, though, don't use one of these abortion-derived cell lines. In fact, a lot of them use animal cells, and there's some that use insect cells. So it's kind of interesting that they're finding these new ways and new types of cells. It's modern ways to make a vaccine instead of that old-fashioned way. And then there is one other new type, and it's uh, the technical term is it's called a vector. Think about a a mailman, and mm-hmm. he carries a letter to your doorstep and puts it in your mailbox. That's what this is. They make not a full virus, but a type of uh, sort of a carrier virus, and it brings that recipe to our cells. So it's a different way to get the recipe instead of the RNA or the DNA v- vaccines we talked about. Now, the problem is, again, even if you're making this sort of carrier virus, you have to grow that in cells. And there are a lot of this type, especially if they're making a carrier virus called adenovirus. Those do use abortion-derived cell lines. And there are some uh, fairly far along, the AstraZeneca and the Johnson & Johnson vaccine that are in testing now use those abortion-derived cell lines. In 2019, the U.S. Department of Health and Human Services announced that it would no longer provide intramural funding for any government research on vaccines or any kind of research that requires the new acquisition of tissues harvested from victims of abortion. So it made a distinction between new acquisition of tissue and the old cell lines that have existed for many decades. Do you think that this uh, had any impact on 
on the development of vaccines? Are people in the research labs shying away from acquiring new cell lines because of this? I don't think so much in terms of the cell line. I do think it had a great effect in terms of the ongoing abortion and trafficking in fetal tissue. Mm. If you if you remember the videos, the undercover videos that David Delayden and sure, a co-worker sure. made, horrific, yeah. but you know, you need to see what's going on in some of these abortion clinics. That decision last year to stop first the intramural funding, in other words, federal taxpayer dollars going to research on NIH campuses and government labs, I think did have a big effect. Another part of that decision was that anybody that is extramural research, which means out at university campuses and labs, Mm -hmm. if they wanted to get any more money to do their research, they would have to go through not just a review of the science, but a review of the ethics of their proposed research. And in point of fact, that ethics advisory board was impaneled and met this past July. We reviewed 14 different grants or contract proposals to of people that wanted in university labs to use aborted fetal tissue. And this is not the cells that have been growing in the, the lab for decades. This is fresh, fresh, fresh tissue. fetal tissue. Yeah, yeah. And, and it is horrific. But, you know, they had to come before this ethics advisory board and say, you know, try to justify, if they could, uh, whether that kind of research was necessary or if there was an alternative way, an ethical type of cell or tissue that they could use for these experiments. Those 14 grants were reviewed. Only one was recommended for funding. What would you say to the... In the freezer. Oh, they already had them in the freezer. Yeah. What would you so say to it, people? I, I remember when this thing came down in in, in June of nine, 2019. Mm-hmm. It said that people reacted on the left or the pro-abortion side, or and <laughs> they said that we were putting ideology ahead of the betterment of mankind because we were going to be denying scientists the ability to make great breakthroughs in all sorts of things like Parkinson's and cancer treatments. What would you? say to that? Is that true? No, it's not true at all. In fact, we reviewed all of their statements in science and pointed out that aborted fetal tissue in research is, number one, pretty antiquated type of experiment. It dates back again to the 1950s and 1960s and hasn't really advanced much since then. And all of those experiments have failed. They will talk again about, oh, we made a polio vaccine in fetal tissue, but they didn't. In fact, the polio vaccines, the Salkin-Sabin vaccines, were grown in monkey cells and monkey tissue. And we talked about these cell lines. And again, all the polio vaccine is made in non-human cells now. They talk about transplants. Well, they put a lot of money into trying to transplant aborted fetal tissue, for example, into the brains of Parkinson's patients. There were two big studies done. The results came out in 2001 and 2003. None of the patients got better. Some of the patients were made worse worse. And in fact, there has been no federal funding of that kind of research since 2008. And so, you know, they keep talking about all of these great strides and so on with fetal tissue, but the record shows they have not succeeded in anything. And in point of fact, there are new, modern, and ethical ways to do all of these Experiments that are really going to benefit patients, uh, adult stem cells for treatment of various things, including potentially COVID-19. Last spring, we had some of these people who want money to get fresh aborted fetal tissue talk about they wanted to develop something using fresh aborted fetal tissue for COVID-19. Now, there's no evidence that they could do that. But in the meantime, the evidence was coming out that adult stem cells from bone marrow or from the umbilical cord were already showing success at treating the most severe cases of COVID-19. As a scientist, it's very clear to me uh, how that is going and that but it's wonderful to hear you say it and explain it to our listeners because we get so much in the media on the other side of the question saying, no, 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 this is important stuff that's being relegated and taken out of the research arena because of ideology. So it's really good to hear that research 
is successful and it's going forward without using all these unethical sources. That's right. There's there's really no scientific or medical basis for using aborted fetal tissue or any of these illicitly created types of cells and tissues. All of the good effects for patients, especially, comes from the licitly developed sources like adult stem cells. If a vaccine company is using fetal cell lines from aborted tissue, do, are they doing that because the lines are available and less expensive than developing a new source of cells? I think that's really the case. It's something that's, in a sense, ingrained in many laboratories that this is what we've got in the freezer. Let's just thaw these out and use these cells, or this is what I've always used. Mm -hmm. And there hasn't been a focus on developing these better cells that are not illicitly obtained. And I want to point out, too, that when people look at vaccines to take, I mean, one of the things you go through in terms of the ethics is, is there an alternative, an ethically derived alternative? Now, in some cases, not COVID-19, but for some others, there may not be. And so the question is then, well, I need to prevent something like death or severe disability. I need to go ahead and I can ethically, in my own conscience, prevent those sorts of serious outcomes and take that vaccine. But there's another part of this that most people have neglected, and that is it is my duty to advocate for an ethically derived vaccine to the pharmaceutical companies, to my doctor, even to government authorities. And we need to push hard, especially the church needs to support people that are developing these new cells so we can do away with all of those old abortion-derived cells. Well, thank you, David, and thank you to Charlotte Lozier Institute that is making that hard work possible of pushing back by setting out all the research and where can they read about vaccines and how they're being sourced and what we can expect in the future? Go to our website and and the front page is lozierinstitute.org, L-O-Z-I-E-R institute.org. I think on the front page, you'll find a link to our chart where we're trying to keep up where these vaccines are being made and, and how they're being made and be able to follow that. Well, thank you so much, and I hope all our listeners go to that page and, and as you say, start advocating strongly for an ethical source to all research. So thank you very much, David. Thank Welcome back to Conversations with Consequences. I'm your hostess, Dr. Gracie Christie, and now my TCA colleague and co-hostess, Ashley McGuire, has joined me. And we will continue looking now on the show at COVID. We're switching over from vaccines to the very sad reality that so many people have lost loved ones during COVID in difficult circumstances. We're now in the month of November when we remember the dead in a special way. Uh, so today we've asked Robert Selig to join us. He's the CEO of Catholic Funeral and Cemetery Services. This is a Catholic church-owned ministry that serves in more than 20 dioceses across the United States, and they are dedicated to providing education, outreach, and professional funeral, cremation, and cemetery services while closely following the teachings of the Catholic Church. Welcome to the show, Robert. Hi, Gracie. Thanks uh, for having me this morning. Robert, before we get into um, some of the very intriguing ways that you're meeting the COVID moment uh, by helping Catholic families going through the trauma of losing a loved one, you have a very inspiring and um, personal story of how you arrived at your profession. And I was wondering if you wouldn't mind telling us about that. You know, it's always interesting to, to open up and, and just talk about our own personal experiences of loss. And I don't know that as a child and as a young man growing up, I ever thought I would actually work in the Catholic Church, serving families around the Catholic funeral and cemetery services and kind of an end of life journey. But um, I kind of got marked early in my life with kind of a tragic story. My um, father passed away when I was four years old. At the time, as you can imagine, it, it's devastating to lose a family member, a father or mother. But my dad actually, this was 1969, so I'm dating myself here a little bit, but he actually took his own life. I was four years old, and so it, it had a tremendous impact on my mom and my sister and myself because it, it just changed our entire world. And at that time, you know, in the Catholic Church, if you committed suicide, you know, it was very difficult to 
to really, you know, help family through that process. Families kept it very silent and quiet. And so my mom, who was actually kind of a fallen away Catholic, had my dad cremated and placed in a non-Catholic cemetery. And so it was something that was not talked about in my family. And I ended up as a young man. My mom never remarried. And so as a young man, I, I was searching uh, quite a bit. And it was not until I was 19 years old that I entered into the Catholic Church. I was actually, I'm a convert. And so I ended up uh, going into a family business and, and really kind of raising a family, met my wife and have three children and um, and was really successful in business. And it wasn't until I was 36 years old, I was working for a public company who had bought my family's business, ended up getting the opportunity to do some work in the Catholic Church, running Catholic cemeteries for the Diocese of Oakland as their director. So you could think of that as like a dramatic shift in career choice, but it was really because of the, the longing and searching that I had to kind of find meaning in my father's death that I ended up taking an interest in the Catholic funeral rites and Catholic cemeteries. So that's that's maybe kind of the place to start with my my personal story and how it brought me to the church. Thank you for sharing that with us, Robert. You know, we've had the chance to read some about some of the extraordinary things your organization is doing to sort of transform the just awareness and, and practice of end-of-life rights. And I think our listeners would be especially interested to hear, as Gracie mentioned, how able to roll these extraordinary times of a pandemic uh, where my understanding is, I, I don't know where things stand now, but that even for a while, traditional burial rights had to be either suspended or significantly changed and what sorts of things did you do in response to help accompany people who wanted to have traditional Catholic funeral and burial in these difficult times. Let me just start by kind of speaking to the purpose of my organization. We we were formed, uh, Catholic Funeral and Cemetery Services was formed as an organization about 10 years ago at the request of bishops to revitalize our Catholic cemeteries and to um, serve families, you know, at a time of loss, right? And so the just that experience of, of loss that a, a family member goes through, and I just spoke to kind of my own personal experience as a, a young man, you know, there's, everyone is seeking love and reconciliation, and especially at the time of loss of a, a loved one. And so we, we realized the ministry of Catholic cemeteries needed to reach out into a more secular world and engage families on that end-of-life journey. So you can imagine, not only is that a difficult conversation, a difficult feat to do in, in today's world with dealing with grief, then you add the pandemic, which really just added a, another level of anxiety and stress. And, and so I, I kind of go back to what has a church had for us for 2,000 years, which is the order of Christian funerals? It's that journey we take through the rites and rituals of the Catholic Church, where we have a, a, a vigil service, we have a funeral mass, and then we go to the cemetery and we do a committal, right? And, and it's that walking together as a community that allows us to uh, share with each other not only the loss that we feel, but the prayers for the deceased and for the family and a, and a reaffirmation of our faith, right? So that's what the church is here for, right? That's our, our core ministry that we do at, at Catholic Cemetery. So, so then you you go right into the pandemic. Everything gets upended, right? We we have to socially distance. We have to actually protect families, you know, from the coronavirus. And then we have families dying from the the virus. And so, how how do we integrate our rituals during that time? So we've taken a number of really dramatic steps to reinforce and create that connection. You have to be innovative during this time. So I, you know, the first thing we did, and um, you know, is we had to make sure families were safe, right? We had to make sure that employees were safe because at the beginning of the pandemic, none of us knew exactly how we transferred this, how it would be connected. So, so we kept all of our cemeteries open, but we started doing things like going outdoors and meeting with families outside. And we obviously had all the PPE and everything. But then we had to move towards the fact that in most places for the first three months, you couldn't actually, in some cases, couldn't even attend a, a shortened service, which was kind of a committal service at the cemetery where you didn't get the opportunity of a funeral mass, the opportunity to, to do a vigil. And so everything got condensed. And so we had to figure out innovative ways to, to deal with that. So we actually started adding live streaming of all the services throughout all the cemeteries that we we operate and in that right we're in the world of zoom and, and technology and that might seem impersonal but what 
became a, a real important part to this was that it became a very intimate experience for families to, to do that. So so we started with live streaming and then now we've moved to having outdoor funeral masses. So we brought the mass for the deceased to the cemetery rather than going back to the church. So there's maybe two little places that we started. Robert, even before the pandemic, it's it's been my experience that Catholics have become alienated from our general funeral practices that have been such an integral part of our traditions, our Catholic traditions, as you said, for 2,000 years. And I find that many people are having their loved ones cremated. I find that sometimes they're not even really connected to the whole process of the funeral. These are people who go to Mass on Sundays. Uh, right. And there's a lot of disconnect there between what were these traditions that were so close to us, so such a deep part of our of the way we experience death, and that now they're gone, the traditions seem to be disappearing. Is part of your ministry reconnecting Catholics to the great traditions of, of our church and how we, we put our loved ones to rest? First, the answer is yes. Reconnecting them to, to the wisdom of the church and to our rituals is, is vitally important. What we really found is that people weren't necessarily alienated from the church and what the church taught. That It was literally a, a lack of education. With Vatican II and the permission for uh, families to choose cremation as an alternate form of disposition, you know, we have burial and then we have cremation. There was just a lot of confusion in the in the church and even in our rituals in the first couple decades after that pronouncement was made. So we're, we're talking Vatican II. Um, so what we realized is that the, the first and most important thing is actually just to go out and educate families on the church's preference for the body to be present at a funeral mass, that the cremation occurs after the, the body is taken to the church and, and you have a funeral mass. Then with the cremated remains, that you actually enter them in a Catholic cemetery and that you go through a committal just as you would for traditional burial. And what we found is that where we kind of innovated is we realized that instead of sitting at the cemetery hoping that families would come in and ask these questions, we realized we had to go out and do education. And so we created outreach programs in all the dioceses where we actually go out to the parishes and we work with the pastor at the church and we actually do education days. We somewhat, as Catholics, took it for granted because we attended so many funerals when we were younger and we had altar servers who would work at funeral masses, that there was a general education that went on. But as our country has kind of moved further and further away from death, right, we, we've almost isolated ourselves from that that experiential uh, piece. So we realized that just doing an outreach and education model, actually families came back to the same rituals that they've always enjoyed. They just wanted to know how to do it now that cremation was a, an approved option for families. There is a very deep human need to do things right. I'm a Cuban-American and we have a very strong uh, burial culture. We have these long involved wakes with many, many people. And up until now, we've been doing things in a very elaborate way with the church. I'm, I'm talking about, of course, we do the whole yeah, the right. whole thing. And I find it personally a very comforting thing when I've had to bury my grandparents, for instance, to know that we did everything right, that we followed Abuelita or Abuelito all the way to the very end and, and handed him over to God, every ounce of respect and dignity that he or she deserved. So I think that you're giving parishioners that uh, you're giving Catholics a great gift when you give them back their traditions. The thing that you just mentioned, right, is that we all, at a time of loss, right, we want to hold on to something, right? And we want to hold on to our faith. We want to hold on to our church. We want to hold on to those that kind of genuinely can help us through a, a difficult time as we navigate all these feelings that come over us. And so the, our church's traditions around, you know, uh, the burial of a loved one, right, they are what our society perceives to be the appropriate way to bury a loved one, right? It's and so cremation just was like a new technology, if you want to look at it that way, that that disrupted it for a period of time where all of a sudden a family didn't necessarily have to bury the body within seven days of death, right? They could, and it actually disrupted it because it took a little bit of time to have the crematory cremate the body. So the church just really, in a sense, had to work out the ritual so that families could accommodate cremation and interment in the cemetery. And so what we find is really fulfilling for families is that when they actually get explained how this works, right, and none of us grows up being educated on how to bury a loved one, right? It's it's something we kind of learn by example, people in front of us. So the ability to actually give people the information and then have people say, oh, this is, I now understand, and I actually can give the gift to my children of saying, here, I'm going to pre-plan my funeral and my burial, and I'm going to choose where I go so that my kids don't have to 
worry about that. That's the, the piece that has been somewhat kind of delayed over the last couple decades where families were, they were kind of leaving it to their children to figure it out. And now that we're living longer, right, our children are sometimes in their 50s and 60s when they're planning a funeral for, for their parents. And so it's it's kind of a societal issue that, that now we realize that by being proactive, you could all of a sudden kind of relieve some anxiety that's kind of built up in terms of what families are, are dealing with today. It's so interesting you mentioned that, Robert, because my own in-laws just sort of surprised us by essentially doing what you just described. They they bought their burial plots. They basically showed us what they wanted to be in their liturgy. And it's sort of grim, but at the same time, it's, it's a real gift for the children because, you know, we can be all sort of united in knowing that, that that's what they want. And, you know, another thing I was fascinated, I myself realized how much I needed to be educated on this front when I was reading more about your work. And I was really sort of amazed to see how the traditional Catholic end-of-life rites are actually very designed to be positive and hopeful and to tie us back into the Paschal tradition and the hope of resurrection in the new life. And, you know, I think that it is sad that so many Catholics have sort of lost that sense of the continuity between this life and the next, that those rites are really designed to um, remind us of. I was stunned, really, to see uh, when I was looking at the the numbers that you've collected from dioceses around the country, to see that there's many dioceses where cremation rates are um, as high as 60-70%. I think where I'm from, Colorado Springs, it was north of 70%. Tell us a little bit about some of the, about your program designed to um, encourage Catholics to bring their cremated remains back to the church for a sort of more formal end of end of life ceremony, and then a little bit about what you're doing to encourage or reintroduce or revitalize interest in, in traditional non-cremation practices. Funeral touches on our belief in the resurrection. That's why we have Catholic cemeteries. I mean, it's, it's core to why the church would say we should have our own cemeteries because we believe in the resurrection and the then we want to connect everyone who goes through that loss from a faith perspective at that moment of loss. I think, you know, as we kind of navigate the changes with cremation and the traditions and, and all the pressures and, and people moving around the country now, we no longer always get buried in the town that we were born in. We have to have programs then that speak to the mission of the church. And so one of the things that we realized was that, um, again, funeral and cemetery services became a very commercial practice in the United States. In the 1970s, 1980s, companies on Wall Street started buying funeral homes and cemeteries and creating a, a kind of national network of, you know, corporate-owned enterprises, right? And the Catholic Church really didn't respond to it. We, we actually passively maintained our tradition because it was from a faith perspective. Um, what we realized is that we actually had to become more proactive to not only, you know, doing the outreach program, but in a number of dioceses, we've actually, when a family that's owned a funeral home is retiring, rather than they're selling to a corporate-owned for-profit enterprise, we have a number of dioceses that have actually acquired those same funeral homes and integrated them so that Catholics in the community can actually have not only the funeral service and the undertaking side of it done, but also the burial in the Catholic cemetery. So in, in some ways, we've, we're building out a model that, that competes with a secular culture that has kind of, you know, taken over the funeral and, and cemetery industry. That's kind of how do we compete in a marketplace that is competing for our attention. But then the other side of it, and this is where I want to add the ministry component that I think is so essential, is that we realize that now that we have this opportunity to do that, that we could do programs like offering the free interment of cremated remains or charity services at our cemeteries. Because there's a, a wide section of the society that in some ways they are bringing cremated remains home and they're not interring them in a cemetery. And we have the opportunity to say, look, we can bring you know your loved one to the cemetery. We have a free program. So we, we do outreach with charity programs to actually reinforce you know our, our belief in the resurrection and our sense of charity. And so we're the only organization that does that on a, a national basis. And it competes against the more commercial practices that are out there. I feel like what we're doing is we're effectively revitalizing what has been a very quiet and kind of passive ministry of the church in a way that proclaims and evangelizes at the same time all of our values in at the time when families go through loss. So, so I kind of speak to it on that strategic level, but it gets very personal. I mean, you just spoke to the to the question of, you know, family members pre-planning their funeral. The funerals are perceived by the public to be very expensive, and they really don't have to be when someone's planning them well in advance. The, the worst time you want to be planning a funeral 
funeral is on the death of a loved one where you you're in shock you're in grief and then you're going to a funeral home or a cemetery and you're you're confronted with the the costs associated with doing this if if you plan it ahead it it really is rather reasonable because it's a part of your life plan just like every other thing that we plan for in our lives so i think that's a just a shift that we're seeing that that families feel much more comforted when they can plan this and it's it's actually much more lighthearted to be dealing with planning where you're going to be buried or your funeral service 10 or 20 years in advance of your passing because it's it's lighthearted and you're talking with family and you're having an important conversation and the important conversation is done in a way where it's not where you're grieving you're actually appreciating you know all the family's values in making those decisions I think that your ministry Robert is extremely valuable I hope that it grows and it, it catches fire all across the nation because I do feel that we need very much when we're burying our loved ones to be very connected to God and to the promise of the resurrection and I don't see how we do that without the church so thank you very much for sharing all of this with us Robert and for all you're doing for families across the nation grieving their loved ones during this time to learn more about Robert Selig and to bring this service to your diocese visit cfcsmission.org thank you Robert all right every morning the Catholic Association reviews all the latest news and sends our subscribers a carefully curated collection of the most important news of the day items are specifically selected for a smart Catholic audience like you don't let the world take you by surprise Subscribe to our daily media roundup at thecatholicassociation.org. And now, Father Roger Landry offers us, as is customary, a short and inspiring homily to prepare us for this Sunday's Gospel. This is Father Roger Landry, and it's a privilege for me to be with you as we enter into the consequential conversation the risen Lord Jesus wants to have with each of us this Sunday. Throughout November, the Church has us focus on the four last things, death, judgment, heaven, and hell, so that we might always be prepared for the first two, enter into the third, and totally avoid the fourth. This Sunday is no exception. Jesus gives us a parable about how we are to be judged and how we're to prepare for it. But in doing so, as he often does, Jesus tells us so much more about who we are in his eyes. The entire history of the world and the vocation of each of us is found in this short story. It's called the parable of the talents. A rich man went on a journey and called in his servants and entrusted his possessions to them, each according to his ability. Twenty gave five talents, another two, and the third one. On the master's return, the one who had received five gave him ten back. The one who had received two likewise doubled it and gave him four back. But the one who had received one buried the talent and just gave him back the one he had received at the end. We can get lost in the numbers in our egalitarian culture and think that the numbers are really important. They're not. Jesus gives to each according to his ability and he'll judge us according to our ability, not according to quantity. We can also get a little lost by the number one as if someone would not have been able to do so much with so little. But we have to remember that by the word talent, Jesus was referring to a measurement of weight. And one talent of silver was equal to 6,000 days wages. Today's money, if somebody makes $100 a day, that would be $600,000. Someone can do a lot with that much to invest. Notice what those who had received the five talents or three million or the two talents or 1.2 million dollars did with what they received. They immediately went out and started to make it grow. The one who had received only $600,000, however, buried it out of fear. Rather than sensing the trust given to him by the master, he feared him, thinking he was demanding, cruel, tyrannical, and he failed to bear any fruit from this gift. What does this refer to? First, fundamentally, the way so many of the scribes and Pharisees had received the talent of the covenant of divine revelation. They buried it out of fear because they didn't want to risk breaking it. That's a great lesson. It's not so much about how, how much we've received, but about how much effort we've given in response to what we've received, both on a natural and supernatural level. Whatever we have, we've been called to use for the kingdom. The greatest talents of all are not our ability to sing or play musical instruments or to play golf or even to think. The greatest talents are spiritual. The gift of baptism, the Eucharist, confirmation, confession, marriage or holy order, the word of God, the opportunity for charity the gift of the cross, the intercession of the saints, our whole relationship with God. We're called to invest these gifts. Many of the most successful people on earth are not the most talented, but the ones who have maximally responded to their gifts. This is also true spiritually. There are a few lessons the parable teaches us about how to live. The first is that God gives to each of us according to our ability. He gives to each of us what he knows we can handle, Many have asked, why doesn't God just give everybody five talents? 
Why does he seem to play favorites? Simple answer that is, is that if God gave everyone the same, there would be no real reason why we would have to share the gifts he's given us with others. There wouldn't be a need. The fact that he's endowed some people with more in one respect than others so that they can have the opportunity to use that gift for the betterment of others. We shouldn't respond with envy, but with gratitude. And more so with a focus to use the gifts we have because God gives to each person lavishly. Even the one who receives one talent receives a fortune. We might not be as smart as Einstein or as brave as many of our veterans or as holy as St. Teresa of Calcutta, but he's given us all huge sums. None of us is a pauper in the endowment category. That brings us to the second part of the parable, what God wants us to do with the gifts he's lavishly given us. He gives responsibilities, but he wants to hold us accountable. Lord calls us to emulate the first two servants who used their talents to make a profit. They invested them. With the same enthusiasm and savvy with which a person on Wall Street tries to make money grow, God wants us to invest the gifts he's given us so that we might make a fitting return to him when he comes to check our accounts. The first two servants, like most entrepreneurs, were risk takers, capable of making a calculated gamble, achieving a high yield. They weren't afraid because they knew that the master trusted them enough to give these responsibilities to them, and they desired to respond as good stewards would. They wanted to make the master proud. In increasing his fortune, they knew that they were increasing theirs. The third person in the parable had none of these qualities. Rather than being industrious, the master calls him lazy. Rather than good and trustworthy, he's deemed worthless. Rather than looking at the master as generous, he looks at him as harsh. Instead of taking a risk due to the master's trust, he said he was afraid. Rather than trying to imitate the master who reaped where he didn't sow and gathered where he didn't scatter, he simply buried the talent and presented it back to him when he came. And rather than entering into the joy of his master, he was thrown out into the outer darkness where there was weeping and gnashing of teeth. If the man had invested the talent and lost it, he would have been in a better place than just simply burying it. But he didn't want to take that risk because his fear was in him alive. Crucial application that the Lord wants to make to us today is to determine from God's perspective whether we've been like the first two servants or like the third. If Jesus were to come right now as a thief in the night and call us to account, what would he say? Would he praise us for having used the gifts he has given us to build up his kingdom, to make his world a much better and more sacred place, to spread his salvific joy to others? Or would we recognize in his presence that we've really buried most of his gifts, especially the spiritual ones? If we responded to the incredible trust he's placed in us in his lavish blessing as a motivation to do good works to the glory of our Heavenly Father, or have we feared him, feared his judgment, and done nothing? We must ponder these questions because the fact is that there are many Christians who out of fear or a false sense of humility bury their gifts under a bushel basket. They never take a risk. They strive not to lose the state of grace, not to commit any mortal sin, not to set bad example. They never grow, however, because the only way one grows in faith, hope, and love is through acts of faith, hope, and love with the help of God's grace. Rather than make the world a better place, their goal is simply not to harm it or to leave it as they found it. They think that there's very little they can do to help build up God's kingdom through the church, so they deem themselves worthless and as a result do nothing. But these are all temptations of the devil to which we sometimes succumb. If that's been our attitude up until now, God wants us to begin to make up for lost time, to start to trade on the gifts he's given us for our good, for others' good, and for his eternal glory. The Lord has given each of us so much because he has confidence in us, trusting us with carrying out his saving work in the part of the vineyard he's given us. Whether up until now we've been faithful in these matters or asleep, now is the time to respond to God's help to begin to invest the treasures he's given so as to help him save the world. If we do so, if we inspire each other in this way, then there's no reason for us ever to fear death as a thief in the night or to be terrified of judgment. For when the Lord returns, we will be able to present to him the ways that the gifts he's given us have grown in us and through us in the lives of others. And he'll be able to say to each of us words he created our ears to hear. Well done, good and trustworthy servant. You've been faithful in a few things. I will put you in charge of many things. Enter into your master's joy.
Let's receive the treasure of his word this Sunday and the even greater talent of his body and blood and run out immediately like the one who would receive five talents to invest it for our salvation and the salvation of the world. God bless you. Thank you, Father Landry. To hear more from Father Landry, check out his website at catholicpreaching.com and you can also catch his writings at EWTN's own National Catholic Register. A big thank you to all our listeners for joining us. I hope that this show was helpful. I hope that it gave you more peace and more hope and more joy and you go with our prayers. 